Last week, we kicked off a series, new series called Good. We're studying the book of Titus. I hope some of you, not some, I hope you read it this last week, maybe looked at the Bible Project um, this, uh, video on that. Uh, and if you missed last week, you can go back, you can go to awakeningchurch.com, watch or listen to the message, you can podcast us at any time, also live stream, our team that does our live stream, you can go to our Facebook site and live stream it or our, way, our website there. But let me give you a little review and then we'll dive in where we're going uh, this morning. The book of Titus is a letter, we call them books in the New Testament, but they're letters for the most part. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. Titus was um, a Greek believer who Paul was instrumental in his faith journey. He's a protege of Paul. And Titus' skill set, he was especially gifted at addressing difficult issues within the church. He was especially gifted for the moments when the church is in crisis. And so anytime the church was in crisis, he, Paul would use Titus and send him there, whether it was with Ephesus or with Corinth. And now the church is in Crete. And it's easy for us to think the church in Crete, it's, he's writing it to Titus in the church, churches in Crete. Crete's this large island uh, right off of Greece, and it was an island that was known to have hundreds of cities, and so there's hundreds of little churches, and he's called to help bring restoration to these churches here in Crete. Now, Crete was known for wild living. I mean, they were the Las Vegas of their day in a wild culture. So if you're known for wild living in the Roman culture, that means this is crazy. They were known as liars and cheaters. Uh, some say nothing good comes out of Crete. Their own prophets would say these sort of, or you know, poets would say these sort of things. And so this is the climate and the culture that the gospel is now beginning to take shape and transform these new believers, and yet there's this natural tension, tension from the culture they live in, that what they grew up with, and this new reality of living in Christ. And so there were some major issues with this church. Uh, the first was the area of hypocrisy. Uh, what they said, what they believed, didn't match how they lived or how they behaved. And as a result, it undermined the very gospel. It made the gospel appalling and not appealing. The second issue was the issue of syncretism. Uh, Crete was a very spiritual island. In fact, they claimed to be the home and birthplace of Zeus. And so what the Cretans started to do was pick and choose uh, different beliefs and kind of combine them together. That's what syncretism is. I, I take this belief and this belief and put it together. And they would take Judaism and they'd take Christianity and then part of their Greek uh, religion or mythology and put them all together. And finally, the issue of division. They were just fighting. They were critical. They were arguing. They were backbiting. And there was this moment... Where we, saw, where we looked at the church and Paul says, I'm going to leave you, Titus, here to finish what I left undone. To, to address these three areas. And these are actually the outlines of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Because it's undermining the gospel. It's causing people to miss out on the goodness of Jesus and the good life he has for them. 
And so in chapter 1, Paul addresses the issue of hypocrisy in the church, and he answers this question. And this is a question we're going to be wrestling with today. Uh, it's how do we become a good church? I, it's not very compelling, I can tell, just by the way your response to it. They're like, oh, tell me more. Like, that's what I was coming to church for. Like, how do we become a good church? But this is what he's talking about. How do we become a good, a beautiful, that word, he'll use the word, oh, man, I skipped over the major theme in there. I didn't. I Let's go back to the major theme just so we can get there. The major theme, that's what I do when I preach and I don't look at my notes. The major theme of the gospel is God's grace leads to good living. That word good in the Greek is the Greek word kalos. It means not just good, but beautiful, lovely. Like God's grace in your life leads to this beautiful living, leads to beautiful work, leads to just a lovely way about you. Like God's grace doesn't just lead for you to do whatever you want whenever you want. And here's the other side of it. We don't do good things as followers of Jesus to get God's grace. We don't do good things as followers of Jesus to somehow earn his favor or be blessed. We are blessed. We are loved. Grace has been bestowed on you. The unmerited favor of God, not as a result of anything you could ever do. And in that reality of a grace-given one, you go, God, here's my life. And you bring a beautiful life. And he actually transforms you. This is the gospel. He transforms you from the inside out to lead a brand, to live a brand new beautiful life. And so the question before Paul in this first chapter is how do we become this good or beautiful church, this community? You know, the church, I believe, when functioning correctly, is one of the most beautiful things on the face of the earth. Like, like the church, just so you know, it isn't a group or it isn't a building. It isn't an institution. It isn't an organization. The church, according to Jesus, is a people, a called out ones who have been transformed by the love of God, who are then expressing his love to a hurting and broken world. And the church, when it functions by God's design, is made to meet the deep need and longing of the world around us. That is the church. And when it's functioning the way the church is designed, it is a city or a light on a hill or a city on a hill that draws people to God's grace. Yet, I don't know if there's anything more ugly, hurtful, and harmful than when a church is not operating the way it's designed. 13, 14 years ago. 14 years ago, my wife and I, we moved from Chicago, Illinois. I was working at a great church. I was finishing up school uh, at Moody. And we moved from Chicago, Illinois to Atlanta, Georgia. And we were joining a church plant there that was, as it started, at the, grew rapidly, rapidly. It was our experience over the three years at this church plant that caused us to really do two things. 
We never wanted to ever be a part of another church plant again. <laughs> and my wife's like, I don't ever want you to lead a church. See, it started off well, but it actually then shifted. It shifted because there was leaders in place that were not godly. It became more political than about Jesus. It was one of those areas where um, the work environment was absolutely toxic. The way they spent their money was uh, dishonest. We're working in this environment loving students And we felt called in this moment to these students. And actually, God was real specific with us. There was a year that we were called to stay there. Even though we would never invite a friend to this church, we actually stopped giving to the church because we didn't trust where the money was going. We watched good friends, godly friends, who then began to wrestle. And as they were entertaining different jobs, they would be fighter immediately because they would be checking their email. When we transitioned on, they actually cut our salary before, and we had two months with no salary. Had a mortgage, two kids, and trying to move across country to San Jose. And I got to tell you, in that season, when we worked in what I'd call a broken church, not a beautiful church, I came this close to just being done with church. I was like, I'm a musician, maybe I can go do that. My brother does it. I was really wrestling with that. I I don't know about this church work because this is painful. We were hurt deeply. We were wounded, disillusioned. See, there's nothing more beautiful than when the church operates the way God's designed because the church is meant to and intended to be the very hands and feet of Jesus. The church is intended to be the hope of the world. We are the carriers of the message of the good news. And yet there is nothing more devastating than when it's run by self-righteous, egotistical, me-centered, greedy, political, and most often men. I remember sitting and wrestling and wondering, what are we going to do? And do we just leave, like, church ministry? Three years into being a full-time pastor. And I remember sitting, and in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives this illustration for the church. He, he says that the church is the bride of Christ. And that Jesus died and that his ministry is, is to make the bride beautiful. And, and I realized with other conversations with people in my situation who had left the church, who said, you know what, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, and I'm going to go from here, and I'm just going to do my thing, and I'm going to have my individual spirituality. And I realized that was never the call of a follower of Jesus, because we are the church. 
We are his body, his hands and feet. We are the bride. And so in that moment, I remember it clearly. Writing in my journal, I said, God, okay. You got me. I'm in. From this day forward, my aim and my goal is to help make your bride beautiful. Come hell or high water. I know it's not going to be easy, but I want to be a part of the solution and not just run from the problem. And so church, awakening. How do we become a good church, a beautiful church? Because what's at stake is other people who have never heard the gospel, who have never experienced the beauty of Jesus, who have never had the life-transforming love of God just invade their life. What's at stake is they get a bad taste and they go, no, I don't want anything to do with that. How do we become a good church? The Apostle Paul is going to give us three keys to becoming a good church. He's first going to say a good church recognizes that it's God who defines what is good. A good church recognizes that it's God that defines what is good. In his introduction, the Apostle Paul says, Paul, a servant of God. By the way, that's his main title for himself. Servant, doulos, slave. Like, I came to serve, not to be served. That's what Jesus said. And Paul says, I'm a servant. Like, my posture and my position is I'm serving. An apostle of Jesus Christ, here's why, to further the faith of God's elect, to help those who are in the faith grow to maturity and their knowledge of the truth that God defines reality. The truth that leads to godliness or this life honoring or this God honoring life in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie and promised before the beginning of time and which is now appointed in the season has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our Savior. First thing, church, we have to embrace is God defines what is good. He's the standard setter not culture. He's the standard setter, not politics. The Republicans do not define what is good. The Democrats do not define what is good. The Libertarians don't even define what is good. I'm tired of American politics and using the name of God to get our way. God defines what is good. And I got to tell you, there's not one party that has all good. And there's not one party that has all bad either. Some of you, I lost some of you right there. I lost some of you right there. I saw it. Good grief. Jesus defines what's good, not our feelings. It feels good, do it. I don't feel like it. Jesus defines what is good. Now listen to this, not moralism. Not our own sense of somehow trying to earn our way or just simply be a good person. Jesus is good. And you only experience the goodness because of Jesus. 
doesn't mean that you cannot do good things, but you don't experience the goodness that God has created for you outside or without Jesus himself. And there's many who grew up in a religious home that would have this statement. I believe in living a Christ-like life, as one young man said. I just don't believe in Christ. And so I want to do this good thing. And to be a good church, we have to recognize that it's God who defines what is good and then commit to appointing godly leaders. Like there's a standard for leadership. Now, this is not talking about salvation. The Apostle Paul is then going to outline the qualification for leaders, the expectation that someone who would step on a stage should have. Someone who's going to say, follow me as I follow Christ, should live. But this is not salvific. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine someone you deeply respect. Maybe it's a mentor. Imagine someone or think of someone that you want to be like. Like the way they talk to people, the way they engage with people. You look at their marriage and go, maybe one day I could have a marriage like them. You look at the way they work and you wonder, man, I would love to work the way they work because look at all that they do, but they they never react in stress or respond in anger. You look at their character, their integrity, and You've gotten to see them close up enough that you see that who they are up front or in public is the same person that they are in private. Now, don't you want leaders to be that kind of person? I know we don't have that standard anymore in America. Don't you want to have a friend that is that kind of person? Don't, don't you want to have a, uh, like, ma- be married to someone? Don't know elbows right now. <laughs> to date someone? The Apostle Paul is going to talk about the qualification for leadership in the church and that we must be committed to appointing godly leaders. This has nothing to do with salvation. This has nothing to do with your relationship or somehow being a better Christian. This has everything to do with allowing the Spirit of God to do the work in you so that you become and I become more like Christ. And those that are in leadership need to exemplify it. There's a standard which means I need to exemplify it. And he gives us five key areas that we are called to bring our life into alignment. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. It's going to be easy because some of the language the Apostle Paul is going to use is going to sound like married and male. And you're going, not me. And this is, yes, you. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is for you. And the first area he's going to talk about is your home life. Your home life. What happens in your home? What happens in your home? And he says, an elder, an overseer, and just right above elder, a leader. This is what he's talking about, a leader. 
A leader must be blameless. This is the word above reproach or, or without accusation. That This is the primary thing that a leader should be, that the life that they live is above reproach, that both internal, their home, external, their working world, they are without accusation. He says they are to be blameless, faithful to his wife. Literally, this is a one-woman man. And the reason he says this, and think about the Cretan culture, the wild living, is the Roman man in that day, and a woman in that day had zero rights, zero respect, and was considered property. And so he's writing to these men, and he's actually elevating women in this, because a Roman man had three women in their life. He had a slave girl that was available to him at any moment for any wants he had physically. He would also then go down to the temple, and there was a temple prostitute that was a part of his life. All of this is considered fidelity in the Roman marriage. And then he had his wife. And he married his wife, and she was strictly for heirs, legitimate children, to his And he's saying, no, fidelity, faithfulness, exalt your covenant relationship. Today, he would say it faithful to her husband, faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to charge of being wild or disobedient. Parents, I just want to say this, and I'm going to get on a little bit of hobby, but we got a long way to go. Hobby, what is that? I'm going to get on my soapbox. There we go. But, but, and we got a long way to go because I could preach all of these for about an hour. Families. And we got a lot of families in this service. Your call is to disciple your kids. We come alongside to support what you're doing in the home. If you need help, let us know. We want to help. Your first ministry, your first priority is for your kids to experience the love of Jesus and then live that out. Like my dream for my kids, especially as a pastor's kid who was a pastor's kid, is that my kids would sit on my shoulders so that they could see farther and do more than I could ever do. My dream for my kids is my ceiling of life, my ceiling of capacity is just simply their floor. Instead of focusing on career, instead of making everything about your world and your success, you're in a season of life. Devote to your spouse. Disciple your kids. Singles, when it comes to home life. Ask this question. Does your home life honor God? Singles, when it comes to your sexuality. Does your sexuality honor Honor God. Well, everybody lives together. Everybody, you got to test drive the car. It's so stupid. It is. Just think about the logic. Logic has been lost from our country. Like, if you just think about things logically, that is just the most dumb thing, dehumanizing thing. You just compared a human to an object and to a car and buying and selling. That's evil. Prayer, I pray. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord every day. Have it on a three by five card. How about for you? 
in your marriage, in your singleness, as a parent, as a man, as a woman? Does your home life honor God? He's going to say the first area is your home life. The second area is that of emotional maturity. Emotional maturity. He then goes on, since an overseer is a... Is manages God's household, meaning responsible for others. He must be blameless. That's our word again. Not overbearing. This is prideful. This is the idea of one who always has to get their way. That's always right and you're wrong. It doesn't matter what you say. And they push and they push and they push. Not quick-tempered. I remember one person telling me that when you become a leader, you lose the right to lose your temper. This is the idea of not just losing your temper, but just having this undercurrent of anger. Not given to drunkenness. Oh, by the way, this is so good. Because when we define elders, 90, not 90, a lot of churches in America, do you know that like Jesus couldn't be an elder? Because there's churches that go, well, if you drink at all, you can't be an elder. You have to, well, that does, it's not taught in the Bible. It says don't get drunk. Jesus not only drank, he made wine. First miracle. A lot of elders, by the way, they say not only has to be man, but has to be married. Jesus couldn't be married. Yeah, he was single. And then they have age requirements. Listen, if your qualifications for an elder, Jesus can't even be it, they might be the wrong qualifications for an elder. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But not given to drunkenness. The Bible talks a lot about alcohol and how to be wise and good stewards of it. This word came to mean outburst in public or being out of control. And not just dealing with, hey, being drunk, but being emotionally outbursting in, with others. Not violent. <laughs> the word is literally striking or pursuing dishonest gain. And here's what emotional maturity means. It doesn't mean to, defi- to deny your feelings. I don't feel this. I don't feel this. What it means is to not be driven by your feelings. Big difference. We think, well, I got to deny them. I got to come somehow stuff them. You stuff them, you explode. It's going, okay, I recognize that I feel this way. Why do I feel this way? I'm going to bring it to Jesus. I'm going to process it, and I'm not going to react in anger to you. And I'm not going to be driven by them. I'm not going to let that be the driving force of my life. Five key areas, your home life, your emotional maturity. Third area, lifestyle generosity. Just a person who's generous. With everything. He says, uh, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. This idea of hospitality is relationally generous, welcoming in without any thought of yourself. In fact, the way uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4 9 says, offer hospitality without grumbling. It's this hospitality like, I love to do it, not I have to do it. And we've been around people who've had to do it. And it takes away from their hospitality, doesn't it? And it's like, man, I love to do it. I'm people-oriented. I'm not me-oriented. That's what this lover of good is. It's just this whole idea of doing what needs to be done. I'm sorry, look down. Dedicated to the kindness of others. Pursuing the best for others. Not being stingy. Like, man, I'm just a lover of doing good for you. 
that were a lifestyle of generosity. And then you have personal integrity. Like what you say out there aligns with what's going on in here in your private world. Who is self-controlled means you are a master of your mind and emotion. Who's upright means to be fair, to be honorable. Who's godly or holy has this reverence for God who is disciplined, this inner strength. Growing up, my dad uh, was a preacher, well-known. He wasn't well-known when I was growing up, but he's well-known now. And one of the greatest compliments that I can ever give of him, and it's actually one of the things that shaped my early years, was he was the same man on the stage as he was at home. And when he blew it, he owned it. And he was so intent on trying to help form Christ in us. I wasn't a very disciplined young man, especially teenage years. And he had us memorizing scriptures, and he would give us one line kind of, or give us, give me, I was the problem. Uh, <laughs> one line definitions. And I remember having to memorize Hebrews 12, where it says, No discipline is pleasant but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. No discipline is pleasant but painful. What's keeping you from who God made you to be is taking a step of discipline. A disciplined pursuit of God, not a haphazard pursuit of God. Discipline, and here's the definition he gave me, is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done regardless of how you feel about it. Some of you need to write that down. I'll say it again. Discipline is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done, regardless of how you feel about it. And you then begin to see the Spirit of God develop in you this Christ-likeness. Five key areas, qualification for leaders. These are just the type of people you look at and admire and go, I want to become like where their home life is just honoring to God. There's a level of emotional maturity that, like, the way they live is just generous. You're just like, I love being around them. They're just generous with their words. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their resources. They're generous with their finances. They have a personal integrity that, that you just trust their character, who they are. And finally, they're doctrinally sound. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that, those, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute who oppose it. In fact, even with Chris coming on board, one of the things we're getting going and we had kind of started was this whole idea of awakening school of theology. Never more have we had access to God's word and resources like Never more in any of human history have we had this type of access. And yet, especially in America, in Western Christianity, we have this crisis of biblical illiteracy. Followers of Jesus, this isn't like you have to know everything, but, but you should know what you believe and why you believe it. Like, if someone said, I want to come to know Jesus, could you tell me? If you panic inside and you feel like, no, I couldn't do that, then I want you to take time and get into God's word. 
ask a friend, find someone, go, okay, I need to know that. I need to know what I believe, why I believe it, and how to communicate it to others. You're not going to say it the way I say it. I do this for a living. And I prepared hours and hours to communicate something. On the fly, it never comes out this good. I hope you thought it was good. If you didn't, <laughs> can I make one observation about this qualification of leaders? Notice the absence of charisma and the presence of character. Notice the absence of talking about talent and skill and the presence of integrity. See, what the church needs isn't more talent. You're talented. What the church needs isn't a whole bunch of charismatic leaders. What the church needs is women and men who are anchored on the truth and have deep character and integrity who live it out to a watching world, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. What, do we, what is a good church? Recognize that it's God who defines what is good. We have to be committed to appointing godly leaders, and then we have to courageously address divisive people. I'm going to go so quickly over this, you're going to be mad at me. And, and the reason is, is we're going to close out this series talking about this. Because this is a whole sermon in and of itself. And it's actually the third chapter in division. But this is what the Apostle Paul says. For there are many rebellious people. Who are these divisive people? It's not out there. It's not out in the world. It's in the church. Full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. He's saying divisive people are false teachers, religious hypocrites, people who are critical and constantly tearing down. You know what it says to them? Silence them. Rebuke them. His conclusion is they claim to know God, but their actions deny them. These divisive people are incredibly spiritual in the way they talk, and they over-spiritualize everything. But when you look at their life, their life denies God. Beware of them. And so what we've committed to at Awakening is we say it this way. We will address difficult problems rather than avoid difficult people. We will address difficult problems rather than avoid difficult people. The tendency in church world is to never address anything. And because we have two services, you know they go to the first service, you start going to the second service. Because there's lots of good churches in this city, and we love them. You go, well, I went to this church, and now I'm going to go to this church. The church is weaker as a result. We'll get into that in week four. I want to take a moment before we close, and I want to just talk a little bit about the leadership structure here at Awakening why do we have leadership council, a leadership council, and we don't call it elders? And the first reason is elders uh, brings an unwanted baggage in American culture. There is a picture that comes to mind, and everyone's picture is different. There's an expectation that comes to mind, and everyone's expect- expectation is different. We have people from multiple different streams of Christianity, whether it's Baptist. Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Catholic, that have come here and are growing in their relationship with Christ. Secondly, is that uh, when we think of a biblical elder, Titus was to appoint elders, 
what it is, is really that role in the early church was really what my role is. There was no board of elders. That is a corporate America, American concept. It's not a bad one, and it fits our world and our reality. There was an elder that oversaw in this little city, this church that met in that house, and an elder that oversaw in this city, in that house, that church, and they were appointed to oversee and really do what I do. And so we call them a leadership council. They are the governing board at Awakening. They are the final authority. In fact, when I set this up, because I believe there's two primary things you need to be a good church when it comes to these things, is you need accountability and you need transparency. So I put those things in the fabric of our Constitution. I made a board that can fire me for no reason. It was awesome. It's like, okay, I, we founded this thing, but at any point, they can fire me. Uh, and so we as a church, we're a staff-led church that is board-protected. Our board, our leadership council, serve a three-year term. Here's the three areas that they are uh, oversee. Uh, the area of our doctrine, the area of our direction, making sure any major direction of where we're headed and going, vision, and then finally of discipline. If there's major church issues, and I'd jot down Matthew 18 uh, when you look at that. Uh, They can serve a three-year term and can serve two consecutive three-year terms. Um, And I just, uh, you know what, we have a number of leadership council members, and I I just got to say we have four or five, I can't count off the top and so many can't count <laughs> but I'm just proud and honored to get to serve with them the reason the, the apostle Paul says this to Titus and we said this last week as the leaders go so goes the church if we want to be a praying church the leadership needs to be desperate in prayer Now, let me define leader for you real quick. We define leader the way John Maxwell defines it. Leadership is just simply influence. And so every follower of Jesus is called to have influence. If you serve in this community, you're a leader. You're making a difference. As the leaders go, so goes the church. We'll never be more humble and transparent and real than we as leaders are. We'll never be more passionate about the loss than we as leaders are. And so, this is what I, where I want to land for us. I actually want to do something because this is a moment for us as a church to say, okay, no, no, no. It's not about just my own individual walk. This is about the collective church. We're a part of something way bigger than us. This is the bride of Christ where I believe God wants to do something in us that's going to spark a movement through us. We moved from Atlanta to San Jose, and we started this little thing called Awakening. It was a young adults ministry, and it went from 30, it started out with 30, down to 6. Explosive ungrowth. (laughs) We took about a two-month break on it. And uh, during that time... The Spirit of God spoke to me. 
and revealed in my life that I had a bitterness in my soul towards the leadership at the church we left. See, it's easy to criticize bad leaders. It's way harder to deal with yourself. And you know what? I just felt the sense in that moment, like my call in that moment was to call my former boss, who I really did not like, and confess my sin, to confess my error, to confess my bitterness. I had the shortest phone call I've ever had. Hey, hey. Awkward silence. You know, I just want to say, I've been harboring bitterness in my soul towards you. And I, I'm sorry. It's not right. It's not godly. Will you forgive me? Uh, okay. Click. See, the principle for us, church, and this is why it's so important, is God will always work deeply in you before he works significantly through you. And you have a plan placed by God on your life. And some of you are missing out on it because you're unwilling to confess where you're at. You're unwilling to say, you can have it all, Lord. And you're just going, no, 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 it's easier to criticize bad leaders than to confess my own junk. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask everybody just to stand up. We're going to close, and we're going to sing this song, You Can Have It All. And I, I, I want to do an altar call, like old school altar call. And some of you just got nervous. But here's the altar call. It's for followers of Jesus. You go, no, okay, today, I want to be that woman. I want to be that man of integrity character. I'm not there yet, but I'm on the road, and there's some things in my life that I know, I'm clear, I need to confess. There's some things in my life, there's some patterns in my life, there's some relationships where we just go and we just see the church come forward and say, we're yours. We're yours. Do the work in me, and I can't wait to see what you do through me. And so I'm going to invite you, as we sing this song, you can have it all. If you're in a place, a believer, a follower of Jesus, and you just come forward and just begin to say as a physical sign, today, I'm yours. I'm all in. I want to be that kind of man. I want to be that kind of woman in regards to my character, in regards to my heart, in regards to our home life and generosity. I'll just tell you, man, it's my words. I speak for a living and my words are cutting at home. And that's the area that I'm coming forward and just saying, God, you can have it all. I want to be kind in the way that I speak. Would you come forward as we sing?